please welcome to the stage Omer Davidi, CEO, Be Hero, and our moderator for this discussion, Helena Humphrey, presenter, BBC. Well, good morning to you all. Great to see so many of you here for this uh, session of Fireside Conversations, talking about leading with vision to create sustainable change, looking at but not limited to how we ensure that our food systems are sustainable ones going forward. Uh, great to have so many of you here with us. Talking about what's at stake, I'll just give you one number to start with, 9.8 billion. That's what our global population is expected to swell to by 2050. So the question is, how do we make sure that we feed those 9.8 billion people while making sure that our change is sustainable, while confronting things like climate change? So I'm delighted to be joined today by Omar, the CEO of Be Hero, to talk a little bit about that urgent change that needs to happen. Uh, Omar, just to start with, uh, you're here in San Francisco. I know it's an offbeat way to start this conversation. I hope you had a good uh, cup of San Francisco coffee to start with. Every morning. <laughs> Every morning, and you know where I'm going with this because that cup of coffee, to boil it down to its very essence, it wouldn't be possible without the honeybee population, a population that is under threat right now. Tell us more about that. So I think you touched exactly the point. Uh, the population is growing. We need to produce more food in the next 50 years. We'll need to produce more food than what we produced over the last 10,000 years combined. So wow. the challenge about food production has become a big thing for, for everyone. Um, and I think one of the things that we did not realize in the early days is how much we depend on bees. Uh, even the fact that we call them honeybees focuses on the fact they make honey. And this is what we used to to take away from them when they were foraging and pollinating plants, we took the honey as a, as a sweetener. But as the farming system becomes more intense in order to support the growing population, we need more pollinators. And bees is considered to be the most efficient one. So we hear about bee mortality rates and the fact that more than 40% of bee colonies collapse every year, but we do not necessarily realize how it's gonna affect food production and if we do not introduce technology in order to support beekeepers' efforts and farmers' efforts to get good pollination, we're going to see the result at some point. I mean, this is nothing to do really with, you know, a critical shortage of honey in the future. That's not what we're talking about, obviously. Um, but just talk about your role in that, what you're doing at Bee Hero to try and address that using and harnessing the power of innovation, technology, AI. How do we confront that? Um, so I, I was privileged. I didn't come from the, from the beekeeping industry or I, I wasn't an expert in the bee world. Uh, I came from cybersecurity. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I founded and sold two companies in the past. And uh, six years ago-ish, I met Itai, one of my co-founders, who is a second-generation commercial beekeeper. And I was quite keen to understand why we don't see a lot of technology in this space. Like, what, what's, what's the missing part? Um, and we decided to try a different approach and focus on low-cost sensors, the fact that technology is more affordable, the fact that we can use strong models, generative AI, and different tools in order to build prediction models and early detection models. 
allowed us to focus on low-cost systems that can be, can be installed in every single hive over the globe and to make sure that we get real-time indications about what's happening. Um, so we developed those sensors. It's a small unit, right. as you can see. It goes into an existing beehive, so you don't need to adjust or change the way that beekeepers are running the operation. By collecting things like temperature, humidity, sound, and so on from inside the hive, we can understand whenever the queen is in danger, whenever you have problem of mites, starvation situation, viral disease, bacterial disease, all those stressors and things that will cause those colonies to collapse if not addressed on time by the beekeepers. And since then, we practically became the largest uh, players in this industry, uh, being the largest pollination provider in the US as well as in Australia and expanding to more you know, APEC countries now. I mean, that sensor that you're showing is fascinating. It works, if I'm correct, using the Internet of Things is, you know, the technical term here. Uh, when I think about beekeepers, though, I mean, I think many of us think about people, of course, with their, you know, rudimentary technology, smokers, you know, wearing their white suits, for example. So how do you make sure that something that's small but powerful like that gets into the hands of people who need it to really make that change. You know, what I'm trying to get at here is accessibility, I guess. I think in, 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 one, in one world, it's seamlessness. So like we need to make sure that the solution that we introduce to more of a old fashioned industries is seamless to the way that they used to run things before. Because if you need to involve market education and they need to adjust the way they do things, that's where the adoption takes a lot of time. Mm. I mean, we've seen companies in the, the, the ag tech spec, the agricultural technological solutions is not something new. It probably started you know, eight, 10 years ago with smart irrigation to save on water and so on. Uh, in areas where we require significant operational changes, things do not scale fast. And trying to build a startup to be an entrepreneur in this environment, you have to show scale. You have to make sure that the solution is seamless. It doesn't affect the way they do things. They can only benefit if it drives the value that you claim to bring. And once they see the value, this is where you start to see the change in the way they operate. Well, on that point then, I guess, of value, you know, I do also want to touch on the economic point of this because um, bees and bee systems and colonies, I mean, they seem to speak to something that's almost Arab allegorical when it comes to capitalism anyway, right? This is the beginning of organization, whether, you know, the worker bees, the honey bees, the queen bee, and so on. So how does something that makes pollination more efficient, what is the you know, economic payoff? Can you point to that and say, this is how it's worked for farmers, this is how it's improved harvests, for example? Mm -hmm. Sure, so maybe to give the, the context, because most of us are less familiar with the, with the pollination industry right. in general, uh, we have millions and tens of millions of hives moving on trucks at nighttime, several times a year, to visit different crops. Bees are physically brought to the fields during the bloom time to ensure good coverage of bees. When we are facing low quality beehives, unhealthy beehives, dead colonies spread in the field, first of all, we spend a lot of efforts of moving empty boxes mm -hmm. in a way, and then we're not getting the pollination activity that we need. So the first focus using the systems is to ensure that the hives that are being introduced to the fields are strong, healthy, and efficient. And the difference between a dead colony, which will pollinate zero flowers, to a strong colony that can pollinate tens of millions of flowers a day is very significant. We've seen impact on 
when it comes to cross-pollination on the quality of fruits. You get bigger apples, for example. Uh, you get more outputs if we talk about berries and if we talk about almonds or, or even canola seeds. Those are the things that can we can see increasing outputs as, as well as quality. Uh, and we need to ensure that we tie all those things together. We support the beekeepers all year long in order to introduce strong colonies to the fields, and then the farmers can benefit from this critical short time frame of pollination that can be done in the most precise and efficient way. And just tell us a little bit about the markets that you've managed to roll that out. Which countries are we talking about? Where have you really managed to see that positive uh, ecological, environmental impact? Um, so we, we, we started this, it started as a project, right? We, we started this project in Israel six years ago. And once we got some good sense that technology can make a difference, we came here. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's California specifically is probably the fifth largest exporter of food right. in the world. And we want, and, and you see a lot of advanced technology used in this food system. Um, so we were keen to address pollination and we started with the almond industry in California, which produces 80% of the almonds in the world and started to spread. Since then, we've seen drop of approximately 20%, 27% drop in mortality rates of bee colonies. Wow. We've seen increasing outputs in different crops, almonds, apples, cherries, canola, berries, sunflowers, and so on. And once we gain some confidence and work with some strategic partners here, um, we decided to expand geographically. Um, so we spread to Australia recently, and now we're in discussions with uh, places in South America where we can introduce a lot of value to the avocado industry and the berry industry. So tell us more then about that collaboration. I mean, technological advancement never operates kind of in a in a vacuum without it, right, essentially. So, you know, Bee Hero, as I understand it, was founded by not just veteran beekeepers, but of course, serial entrepreneurs like yourself, data scientists, biologists. I think it's a really interesting group of people to come together, not perhaps people who had worked together um, every day. So what kind of collaboration did you get with governments, whether that is subnational, national, and, and, and so on? And what kind of leadership is needed on that? I think, I think it's a critical point. When we first started to look into this space, we reached out to some of the universities, some of the governmental institutions to try and see what was already done. Mm -hmm. Like people are looking into colony collapse disorder for 12 years or, already. So like what was done, how could this be um, adopted by the, by the commercial domain? And we learned that there's just lack of data. No one was in a position to build strong and solid data set that can support the entire research community, whether it's governmental institutions or whether it's you know, universities and so on. So the first effort and basically the first year and a half of the company was about building a data set. Wow. And it keeps building since then, so it, it, it became huge. And now that we have access to, to the data, we are building collaboration. Uh, one of the collaborations that we recently built was with the, with the USDA. So the USDA is dealing with one of the threats of the spread of the Asian hornet into uh, Washington state. And they were looking to identify the spread. It affects bee colonies, it affects other pollinators. And that's where we learned that we have data samples of WASP stack. And we can deal with it in order to support their efforts. And now we are doing a project with the government in order to mitigate this risk. And we've seen many projects with different universities um, across the globe. And I think this is where we need to put more efforts. We need to pull in more 
leaders in this industry so we can share with them our data and they can introduce value to, the, to everyone. And on that point then, what more do you think? I mean, you're playing one role, of course, in food security and sustainability, but what more do you think that other leaders, businesses, governments need to be doing to pull their weight, essentially, on one of the most critical issues of our time? Um, I think a lot has changed. So if, if we look at the Farm Bill, for example, in the, in the US, it's a, it's a good example of how the government is supporting the adoption of new technologies into the, the food system. Uh, the last Farm Bill was approved five years ago. Think how much changed over the last five years in terms of the technology, the affordability of technology, and so on. So that's where we are spending efforts with you know, government officials, not specifically for Be Hero, for different companies, and not specifically for pollination, for different solutions that can drive improvements. We are talking about a slow-moving industry, in effect, that there's seasonality aspects. There is, uh, it takes time to validate the value proposition, sometimes even years. The startup ecosystem is not built for it, right? It's built to move fast. You need to show double, triple traction every year, otherwise investors don't really know how to assess you. Uh, and this is where I think we are getting a lot of support uh, from governmental officials, uh, and, and we need to see how we can leverage those new technologies to at least be explored by the, the commercial domain. Because things that works well in the lab might not necessarily translate well into the commercial domain. And that's a critical part. And talking about those challenges, I mean, startups, you know, by their very nature, they start out scrappy. I mean, you're a serial entrepreneur yourself. It doesn't mean to say, of course, you know, there are always <laughs> challenges, right? Um, what were some of those challenges that you faced? And I guess what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs, innovators coming to the field of sustainability about uh, what they need to do to successfully carry out and bring their vision to fruition? I, I, I think, you know, California is a very interesting example because, you know, you have the Silicon Valley where a lot of tech is coming from, and then you have the Central Valley where most of the food is being right. produced in, 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 the, in the state. And... People in Central Valley might not look at people from Silicon Valley in a in a in a good way. Like you know, they don't they don't have boots on the ground. We sure. don't really understand what we're doing. I think that's maybe a critical component that one of our co-founders is is the boots on the ground. He's mm. the guy that grew up in this industry, a second generation um, person. And and you know, for us, it introduced some some challenges in the early days that you don't even think of. Of like. How can I be accepted in the Central Valley as a Silicon Valley company? Yeah. Uh, so those are the small things. Um, I think my, my advice will probably be around get out there early on. Um, you know, we tend as tech people, and, and I'm a tech guy, to spend time in a lab to make sure that we can do what we want to do. Uh, and then we, we want to come to the market with something that is strong enough, with a proof of concept that we can stand behind. There's so many things that we've learned out there in the field that we didn't know, even though we have someone that grew up in this industry, that the sooner you get out there, the, the more mistakes I would say you avoid. Mm. And every mistakes in this space might take another year to solve because you might need to wait for the next season. So when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to food production, get familiar with the market as soon as you can and use as many design partners as possible. 
Uh, we, we got General Mills to join Be Here on the last funding round. The amount of activity that we've been doing with them in order to support our efforts to, you know, improve our solutions is significant, talking about biodiversity, you know, something that we don't do as a revenue stream. We're not selling anything related to biodiversity, but that's a big threat that they want to address. They have the resources to address. We have the tools to support it, and that navigates some of the priorities that we have within the company. So your message then essentially would be get out from Silicon Valley if you're there, for example. In your case, get out into the Central Valley. Get your boots on the ground. Get your hands dirty. Put yourself in a beekeeping suit. Open the hive. Spend the day. Sweat. Understand what they're going through. Small thing, you know, a product guy will develop a, an app for a beekeeper. Not even thinking on the fact that you're covered with honey. You have gloves. Like, it's not going to work. You're not going to take your phone to, to the field when you, when you work the bees. And, and that's just a small example mm -hmm. that, you know, working in the office, everything looks clean, everything is easy. Going to the field, dust, reception, honey, bees, gloves, it just doesn't work. I think a powerful message and reminder to us all there from Omar Davidi, CEO of Bee Hero. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Welcome to the stage, Ambassador Earthrin Cousin, CEO and Managing Director, Food Systems for the Future. Ambassador, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on the stage. Um, you have a distinguished career in humanitarian affairs, not least as the executive director of the United Nations World Food Program. I want to start with something that you've said, something I personally found inspirational. Uh, you've said when it comes to ending global world hunger, yes, we can. Uh, an inspiring statement. Si se puede. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Yes, we can. Something Definitely. people you know, yes. need to be reminded of when we see mm -hmm dire situations all around the world. Before yes. we get to the how okay. and your vision, <laughs> I want to touch on the, obviously we understand the why, but I want to understand why that's your personal mission. Oh, Mia, I was born this way. <laughs> <laughs> I was simply born this way. I keep saying, I'm going to write a book, mm -hmm. and that's the title. I was born this yeah. way. The reality is, I grew up in a family where I had a mom and dad who were committed to making change in the world. My mother was a social worker. My dad was a community organizer before Barack Obama made it popular right. to be a community organizer. And we lived in the heart of Lawndale, which some people would call a ghetto or a slum, but they wanted to live where they worked to provide an opportunity for their children to know how blessed we were. And so we were the place that people could come. There were always balls and bats that anybody could take, but you always had to bring them back. And they wanted us to understand, because we had been given much, mm -hmm. that there was much we were responsible for doing. And I always say my siblings grew up and went and had real lives and got real jobs. I made a career out of trying to help change the world. And in doing that, it's taken you, of course, right across the globe, places like the Dab refugee camp, for example, where you've said before, um, unfortunately, as laudable as the humanitarian affairs system might be, we are still feeding the same people drought 
after drought, because that is the cycle of what we're facing right now, uh, ever increasingly, unfortunately, due to climate change. Now, I say this coming from the humanitarian system myself. I was a former yes. UN worker, and it's true. We do end up giving, very sadly, food assistance to the same people, the same women trying to mm -hmm. feed their children, essentially. How do we change that, and what is your vision for changing that so that we don't have to keep giving assistance to people who are living in, on the front line of climate change in this way? Well, we know that of the 800 plus million people who are food insecure today, those who are in an acute famine situation, four out of five of those people are victims of conflict. Mm. They are living in conflict situations. And the challenge is providing for resilient food systems in conflict situations, what you need is peace right. in order to do that first. As we look at Ukraine and what is happening in the Gaza and in Gaza and with Israel today and other places, Afghanistan and other places around the world. But we also know that climate is driving a great deal of this. And some of the most vulnerable people in the world live in climate vulnerable places. The opportunity there is to invest in sustainable food systems that will produce food that is required to feed families, not just during, at the time of, of harvest, but all year round. Mm. And the, the last piece I would say is we need to realize that the, when we talk about building sustainable food systems, we're not just talking about in sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking about in countries across the APEC region, including here in the United States, investing in the food systems that will continue to produce the food that is necessary to support that 9.5 billion people that you talked about by 2050, when FAO tells us that we need to increase food production by some 50%. And just on that point, I mean, you mentioned there it isn't just sub-Saharan Africa because the knock-on effect of this is, is food insecurity around the world. This country, here in the United States, 35 million people food insecure right now. Right now, 35 million people who are food insecure. And let me give you another number. 41 million people here in the United States who can't afford a diverse, nutritious diet on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And that number is part of the 3.1 billion people globally who can't afford a diverse and nutritious diet on a daily basis. But what we need to realize is that the food system is complex. And so the answers will require a diversity of solutions. It's not about just sustainable agricultural production on the farm. It's also about sustainable livestock management. It's about agroforestry to support our environment as well as growing food in those places where our forests are so important. It's about alternative proteins being a part of the solution, but not the only solution. So I can go, it's about aquaculture and having sustainable uh, aquaculture systems. And, and all of these, all of the work across the food system, across the value chain, uh, is, is necessary to ensure that sustainable, durable food system that I talked about, whether you're talking domestically here in the United States or across the globe. Ambassador, you just sketched out there, I think, a five-pronged at least approach <laughs> to those, uh, you know, shoring up a sustainable food system. How do you do that, A, in terms of collaboration, and then B, let's talk about the money piece, right? 
It's expensive, but how do you do it? And where does that money come from? The, the money will come from not just the traditional sources. You have government subsidies, and what we subsidize becomes very, very important right now. We, many would argue that what the $700 billion in agricultural subsidies globally is being misspent. Not all of it. But we can repurpose subsidies to support smallholder farmers, to port, support regenerative agriculture and carbon sequestration. We can support the investments in what is often, too often called specialty crops, which are more fruits and vegetables. And so repurposing subsidies is going to be quite critical. But the other quite critical financial source is private sector. What we need is private sector investment in the food and agriculture system. Only 4.8% of all climate finance dollars from the private sector goes to ag and food. 4.8%. Yes, ag and food represents 25% of the greenhouse gases emitted every year, and it is the, most, the system that is most vulnerable to climate change. Why is that? Right, why is that? <clears throat> I look out on this audience of CEOs and say, why is that? Uh, the reality is that agriculture and food have, already, uh, have always been deemed risky. We're not sexy enough as transportation and energy, but we are critical because even if we did everything that um, that has been suggested on the, in the energy system if we, and, and transportation, if we don't address the challenges of the food system, we won't meet the, the Paris Accord, the agreement of the Paris Accord. Well, you're making a strong sales pitch for it, but, uh, you know, just looking at the fact that our global food systems right now, I think they contribute to something around 25% of the world's greenhouse gases. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that point. Right. Um, and we know that through climate change, that ends up having a disproportionate impact on those who are then on the sharp end of it as well. I mean, it is one of the great ironies of this system right now. So how do we make sure as well that that capital flow goes to those people as well? How do we advocate for them who are really particularly in lower income countries, for example, disproportionately impacted. Right, we, we will need to invest in our smallholder farmers. We have 500 million smallholder farmers who feed 80% of the, of, of the population in the countries where they work and, and farm. Oh. And so investing in those smallholder farmers is going to be critical, but it's also important that we invest in large farms. We invest in farms that can efficiently and productively and sustainably provide the food that is necessary to support not only the, the food needs of the populations in the countries where they harvest, but also to support our global trading system. Our global agricultural trading system is quite critical to our food security system. And we're not just talking about globally as well. I mean, when we look at the United States, for example, I think it's something around 50,000 black farmers who remain in this country operating. There are less today. Wow. That was at the end of 2021. We had 50,000 black farmers, and every year we're losing more. Um, we're losing more because of the lack of access to the financial resources that we're talking about here today, the lack of access to the tools to ensure that they can compete. Less than 1% of the agricultural production um, that is traded, that is sold on an annual basis in the United States is produced by black farmers. And it is not because blacks don't, black farm, the 
but black farmers don't want to produce. It is because they have not had the investment, the access that is necessary for them to produce. We have the same thing with women farmers. Mm. We know that women farmers don't have access, whether you're talking here in the United States or you're talking globally. They don't receive the access that is necessary to the finance, the tools, the capacity building. But we also know that, in particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, some 40 to 60 percent of the farmers, depending upon the country, are women. And if women receive the equal access to the, the, those tools and finance and capacity building, that you would increase production by 20% just on the African continent. So these are not problems that are, that are the, limited to any one country. But that's what's exciting about conferences like APEC, because you bring together economies who are looking to work together to develop the responses that are necessary at the global level to ensure that at the national level they're implementing the policies and the regulations that will support their ability to assist their, own, their, their, their farmers and their populations. Well, let's touch a little bit about then the international impact and upshot of all of this then you know we're here at APEC if we start to get a handle on some of those challenges with some of the suggestions that you have mentioned is the upshot of this more global trade I would hope so but global because global trade global trade with rules uh-huh rules-based global trade open free fair free and fair trade that's governed by rules rules regarding um, the environment regarding hum, uh, human rights as well as the protection of jobs uh, yeah you and I had a similar experience coming in here today where there are protesters outside who believe that this type of a conference is detrimental to livelihoods in countries around the globe I would say it doesn't need to be that way that we can we must have a global trading system that supports where food grows and where food needs to where imports are required um, but that system must be based upon rules it must be open um, when uh, in 2007 to 9, when I went, first became U.S. ambassador, we had a high food price crisis mm -hmm. because of uh, trade embargoes in uh, some of the APEC economies that affected net importing countries in West Africa, as far away as West Africa and Haiti, even. Um, and as a result, there were. Uh, uh, discussions and, and that, that resulted in a better understanding of what was necessary to keep trade open. And during COVID, while you had a few spikes with some problems, they were minimal but you did not have a disruption of the global trading system. And as a result, babies didn't go hungry. You didn't have the kind of uh, while we had higher food prices, because there were other problems that we could talk about that affect, were affected by COVID, that COVID affected in the in the in the um, in the trading system, even local systems. But the long line trading systems of commodities stayed open. Mm. And we were able to ensure that the level of problems that we saw between 2007 and 9 did not occur as a result. 
And that's the what you need is that type of partnership and uh, based, as I said, but based on rules, ensuring that there is access to the food that is necessary to feed the global community. Well, I just want to talk about where, lastly, the civil society comes in on this. You were talking about those well-fed babies. Uh, I've read that you've also, whilst you were at WFP, have said that you didn't want your media team to take pictures of emaciated babies, babies who were ill because of lack of food, because you wanted to show these chubby, well-rounded babies in lower-income nations to show, yes, this is possible, we just need to have the commitment. So I guess my question to you is, and, and cognizant of the fact that I myself am a member of the media, what role does media need to play in this? What role does academia need to play? The whole roster of civil society when we talk about a food-secure world. We need a narrative that says ending hunger is possible, no matter where we are in the world. And that narrative starts with the media and those with voice who are willing to tell, to speak truth about women and families in tough places around the world. Because I have been, as you noted, in Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, Yemen, every family feeds their baby first, whether it's in, on the west side of the city of Chicago or it's in, the, it's in the, a, a, a slum in, in Nigeria. Right. And the reality is, what we know is that when people are given the resources to support their ability to grow the food that is necessary, or the resources to purchase food that is affordable and available, that their children are fed, that they have the opportunity for prosperity. And that's all, that is the, that narrative is too often not told. Uh, it is that we lean into the story with the baby with the flies on their eyes. And we fail to magnify the mother who is working hard every single day to feed her children, no matter where she is in the world, no matter how tough it is. And they're not asking us to save them, they're asking us to help them save themselves. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much for bringing that narrative and that reality to us. Ambassador Cousin, thank you. Thank you. Please welcome to the stage, Michael Punk, Vice President for Public Policy, Amazon Web Services. Ambassador, great to have you with us today. Thanks a lot, great to be here. We've been hearing from our various uh, panelists already about significant cha challenges in agriculture. You and I are sitting here having this discussion, obviously not as, as farmers, but nevertheless, I mean, the scale of the problem is clear, whether that is, you know, talking about pests, whether that's talking about varying crop yields, which we're increasingly seeing now uh, in the face of climate change. And coming to you, at Amazon Web Services, how can we harness something like artificial intelligence, something like remote sensing to make a meaningful impact to those people on the front line, taking on those challenges day after day? So one of the really fun things about my job is I get to travel around a lot 
and I get to see the way that uh, a technology like cloud and artificial intelligence is used by literally hundreds and thousands of creative companies around the planet. And uh, having the ability to have access to those powerful tools, uh, I'll give you an example of, a, since we're talking about agriculture, and it was really interesting to hear the conversation uh, already mm. today, but there's a, a, a Swiss company called uh, OneSoil that uses a combination of satellite technology and artificial intelligence all brought together on cloud to help farmers do a micro-analysis of their land. And so when it comes to things like trying to figure out how much water needs to be put on the land, how, how does the seed need to be distributed, how much fertilizer needs to be put on the, the crops or pesticide, uh, they can make remarkably micro-adjustments in those uh, calculations. And instead of just doing a big broadcast of water, seed, uh, fertilizer, pesticide, they do very micro adjustments. So that's one example of where artificial intelligence is being used with those kind of remote sensors that you're talking about in, in agriculture. Another example in a slightly different area, uh, a company called Brainbox that helps uh, commercial entities better use their HVAC systems, heating, uh, ventilation, air conditioning. And again, with these kind of micro uh, remote monitors, uh, makes adjustments throughout the course of the day. And when this technology is applied, these companies are finding that they're saving 25 to 30% on their HVAC bills in a matter of a couple months. So those are just a couple of examples, I think, that are interesting. Of We, we tend to hear about uh, you know, uh, companies like ChatGPT when it comes to something like, like, uh, yeah. like AI. And certainly, that's an interesting company. But there are thousands of these companies that a lot of people have never heard of that are doing these really interesting things. I think those are two pertinent um, examples. You know, how widespread is the use of something like that, the uptake? And I guess, you know, how do you scale up something like that? And that's something I've been saying to all of the guests today. How do you make it accessible for the people that could probably actually most benefit from it? So the whole concept of sort of democratizing access to technology is in many ways uh, the most uh, fundamental thing that cloud brings to the table. And I'm not a, uh, I didn't come to this job as a technology person. So there, I've had these various little aha moments mm -hmm. as I've been learning <laughs> about cloud over the course of the last seven years. And one of the real aha moments for me in understanding why cloud is so important was uh, in a description I heard about what the typical chief information officer had to do before cloud in figuring out how much technology to literally buy at the beginning of the year. And when it came to uh, a CEO at the beginning of the year would try and figure out uh, how much uh, uh, data storage and processing capacity do I need for the, for the coming year. And before cloud, you had to buy uh, your own server. And we all remember the server kind of down the hallway that uh, one of our uh, coworkers kind of right. was responsible for managing. And the trick of that is if you uh, bought too little storage and processing capacity, you risked your system crashing if there was a spike 
in use. And we all remember examples of when systems crash because of a spike in use. And so oftentimes, to avoid the risk of that uh, system crashing, uh, companies would go the, the, to the other extreme. They would buy too much technology. Um, and what cloud brought to the table is the ability to rent capacity to storage and processing uh, capacity, uh, literally by the, the minutes. And if, you, if your use spikes up, you rent more for that period of time. When it spikes down again, you rent less. And it solved a really fundamental problem. But your, your question was about how do we create more access to the technology. And one of the reasons I mentioned that is because it was particularly hard for small and medium-sized businesses to solve that problem because they don't have a lot of capital. Right. They don't want to misinvest their scarce resources. And so that ability to rent access to uh, storage and processing capacity is really fundamental. So that's one aspect of it. And talking about that point of you know renting access, for example, what I am hearing over and over again in all of these pieces with regards to innovation is data, huge amounts of data, overwhelming to a layman like myself, I think it's fair to say. So just help us understand how something like generative AI, for example, can pass these reams and reams of data in a way that has a positive ecological benefit. So if we're talking about um, decarbonization strategies, mm -hmm. for example, if we're talking about predicting flood risks, how can we use that? How can it be useful? Well, let me give you a couple more examples from sort of actual uh, real world applications because I think they help to, it's also abstract right. otherwise. And so some of these real world examples, I think make it more understandable. So one of uh, AWS's uh, customers is Qantas Airlines. Um, and obviously, uh, figuring out how much uh, fuel uh, to uh, use, how much, uh, which path a airplane should follow is, uh, is, is rich with potential for uh, applying data about all sorts of different factors at the same time. And what Qantas is doing is using AI to literally uh, be able to adjust their flight paths uh, as they're flying and make these uh, small adjustments in order for the, the fuel economy of the plane to be better. And so, I mean, that's a sort of a real-world example of, of fuel conservation. Um, another example I love, I live in Montana where uh, forest fires are a real issue in the summer, like, like here in California. And California is using a combination of drones and AI technology to be able to uh, monitor uh, vast forest lands and detect uh, outbreaks of forest fires much earlier so that they can, be, uh, they can be fought much earlier. So there's all sorts of examples like that. You're, you're talking about data sets. Uh, there's a, a company in my hometown of Missoula, Montana. I like to hike. And there's a company called Onyx, uh, O-N-X, that, uh, that makes a map technology that you can carry on your phone. And it literally has access to all of these public domain maps that you can carry around with you. You can be in, in remote backcountry areas and see on your phone where you're at and uh, keep yourself from getting lost. And so let's talk a little bit about the impact of that then between 
AI and the cloud in terms of, you know, you've gathered this data, you've collected it through AI, it then lives on the cloud. Uh, you know, how can that be used by whether it's subnational, national governments, for example, in terms of, you know, predictive strategies? I mean, it must be of, of use for that kind of thing. Sure. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of different aspects about the interrelationship between the cloud yeah. and AI, between the cloud and, and generative AI. I mean, the way that I think it's most useful to think about it is uh, the cloud is really the foundation on which all sorts of other really critical technologies that we think about and talk about all the time are built. So AI is built on the cloud's capacity to store and process a lot of data. Uh, uh, quantum computing uh, is, relies upon cloud. Uh, 5G uh, relies upon cloud. So cloud is really the foundation for all of these other things. And then when you talk about generative AI, and especially the ability to train uh, these large language models, uh, that in part particular requires uh, very large amounts of, of storage and processing capacity, processing capacity. And so cloud is, is essential in that. How borderless is something like cloud then? And, you know, and how important are cloud-first policies, you know, particularly cognizant of the fact that we're here at APEC um, and going beyond you know, the US and, and member economies? So yeah. how borderless is something like cloud? Well, uh, certainly uh, the ability of data to move around the planet is a big part of the idea behind the power of the internet in terms of the ability across uh, national lines to, to have access to the, to the world's data. That's what we think of with you know, WWW, World right. Wide Web. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's, it's supposed to be worldwide. But I'll, I'll pick up on a, a couple different pieces of your, of your question uh, separately, because you, uh, you mentioned cloud first. Mm -hmm. And cloud, so-called cloud first is a, uh, a policy that many governments around the world have uh, embraced uh, as a way of saying that in their own operations, they will uh, default to using cloud first because of all the advantages that cloud brings to the table in terms of security, efficiency, et cetera. And one of the really interesting uh, dynamics we've seen is uh, COVID uh, resulted in many governments around the world uh, accelerating their use of cloud tools in the face of crisis, and which I think historically you see uh, lots of examples of uh, a particular crisis accelerating. Necessity the use being of the mother of invention, exactly, yeah. Exactly. And so during COVID, governments were uh, uh, all grappling to help their citizens be able to work remotely, uh, remote education, have access to, to health information. And uh, in some cases, by necessity, they turn to cloud as a way of doing that more efficiently. Uh, cloud first, as I said, is, is kind of uh, a step of making that a much more deliberate and less reactive type of, 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 uh, of policy prescription. And it's important because it signals that uh, the cloud is, uh, is a safe way to, to, to store and process data. Well, let's touch a little bit on the collaboration part in all of this, because it never happens in a vacuum in terms of technological advancements. So how does Amazon Web Services 
collaborate with other stakeholders, uh, be it business, government, and so on, to make sure that you know these technological advances are impacting ecologically in, in a positive way when it comes to the environment? So uh, there's a, a bunch of different aspects of that question. I mean, the starting point at Amazon, I think, when it comes to sustainability is, is our climate pledge, uh, which we undertook a couple of, uh, a few years back, a, a pledge to meet our Paris obligation of being uh, net carbon neutral 10 years early. So instead of 2050, uh, meeting that by 2040. And then we invited uh, other uh, companies to sort of join us in that pledge, recognizing, of course, that it, it, takes, it, it takes a broad community to, to truly have impact. And so more than 400 companies have joined the, the climate pledge uh, since uh, Amazon take that, took that initiative. There's, in, in addition to uh, companies making their own pledge about uh, accelerating their, their, uh, their work, there's also all sorts of cooperative uh, initiatives between the companies. So, for example, uh, Amazon works with Rivian, uh, which makes uh, green vehicles. We bought 100,000 delivery vehicles, uh, green delivery vehicles from Rivian. So there's, there's that type of, of cooperation. But, but one thing I really want to emphasize when it comes to sustainability is the significance of cloud itself as a, as a, uh, a, a way of achieving our climate goals. One thing we can almost certainly predict is going to happen is the amount of data that all of us around the world use is going to continue to increase. And we all carry around in our hand a cell phone in which we, uh, you know, see minute by minute uh, our, our own personal uses of, of data. And so that, that use of data is going to increase. And so having the most efficient way possible to store and process that data is going to be critical to the planet's ability to, to meet our climate goals. Cloud, because uh, you can think of cloud in a lot of ways as the public transit of data and the storage uh, of, of storage and, and, and processing because it's, it's pooling uh, this effort. So it's, it's the equivalent of taking, taking the bus as opposed to the old-fashioned way of driving your own car to work, having a, which is having a server down the hallway. So uh, there's a great study that shows that the, the day that, that uh, entities shift to the cloud, their carbon footprint for data storage and processing drops by 80%. Wow. Which is an incredible number when you think about it to, to get that type of a gain from a single change like that. Lastly, Ambassador, I think we've got about a minute left and I've got a massive question for you, which is basically with your extensive background in international trade uh, as the US Ambassador to the World Trade Organization, how do you envisage, envisage opportunities uh, you know, to harness AI to boost global trade, you know, keep everybody fed at the same time and contribute to green economic growth? Well, it's a huge challenge, and uh, in many ways, the global trading system has not exactly been shrouding itself in, itself in glory in, in recent years in terms of demonstrating the ability to help problem solve. But I think there are, on the one hand, it's critical that uh, if we're going to see the benefits uh, from a technology like AI, which I believe very much are there, we have to also address, at the same time, the legitimate concerns that people have about 
a powerful technology like AI. And governments have a huge role in, in, uh, in helping to build that trust. Uh, I think there are some really positive signs lately, things like the, the White House voluntary uh, commitments on AI, which have, uh, have been uh, carried forward also by the, the G7. Uh, I think that is an organization that is, that is helping to, to build that trust. But it's going to be difficult as the, the group of countries gets uh, bigger and bigger to not have it be the case that we uh, slow down uh, the, the speed at which we, we move or water down the quality of the standards. So that would be the, the challenge for groups yeah. like APEC. Yeah, huge challenges and opportunities, hopefully. Ambassador, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Great to talk. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. Please welcome to the stage the Honorable Gavin Newsom, Governor. Of Pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be here. A real fireplace. Amazing. I know. Nothing less for a proper fireside conversation. What is this, by the way? Ouch. I haven't asked that question, <laughs> but glad you have. Hello, everybody. Governor Newsom, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It's a particularly uh, busy time, of course, for your state. Um, we've been talking about sustainability, of course, California is a state that knows firsthand yeah. uh, the challenges of climate change. So huh. <laughs> we were talking about the pressing need for sustainability in the food system, but it's not limited to that, of course, all right. sectors of the economy. Tell us about how your state is, is dealing with that pressing need and well, your vision. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> if you don't believe in science, you have to believe your own eyes. <laughs> um, you know, California in the last, few decades has been burning up, heating up. Our children are choking up. Unprecedented droughts, unprecedented wildfires, record breaking this, record breaking that. Um, we are the tip of the spear in terms of the impacts of climate change, but also uh, the tip of the spear in terms of the strategies to dramatically change the way we produce and consume energy. And, and just for folks, um, that may not be so familiar with California in relationship to the issue of sustainability. Our leadership goes back to the 1960s. It goes back to then Governor Ronald Reagan. It goes back to partnerships that we advanced with then President Richard Nixon. California created its first regulatory body, the California Air Resource Board, in 1967, and we became the first state in the United States of America to regulate tailpipe emissions. And that's allowed us to maintain a position of leadership, and it has allowed us to maintain a position that has some permanency. Regardless of what happens in Washington, D.C., California is able to establish a constancy in terms of its regulatory structure that allows partnership, it allows investment, and allows a sense of certainty that policy will accelerate our change to change the way fundamentally we produce and consume uh, energy. So I, I'm really proud to be part of that proud tradition in terms of California's environmental leadership, but there is no state, again, the Western United States, but particularly California, more impacted by the consequences. Absolutely. I want to touch on something you just said there, saying regardless of what happens in Washington, D.C., yeah. okay? So uh, you have your policies in your state. What kind of pace do you think all states need to be moving at? How aggressive does it need to be? How quick does this change need to happen? Well, we, we've, we're the pace car of modern 
environmental movement in the United States of America. We feel a deep sense of responsibility to be first mover. We love to say about California, the future happens here first. We're America's coming attraction. And when it comes to policy setting on the climate, we have no peers. And the remarkable part about California's leadership, again, established under the framework of our regulatory body, the California Resource Board, is that we impact the, and influence other states. The power of emulation. Success leaves clues. And what we've been able to achieve in California is not only nation-leading environmental policy, but the application of that policy has allowed us to dominate as one of the most robust economies in the United States of America. And I think that's really the principal point I want to emphasize here today. Um, our economic success, California's economic success, is not despite our environmental leadership. It's because of our environmental leadership. We're a large fossil fuel producing state that already has six times more green jobs than we do fossil fuel jobs. Just think about Tesla. Tesla exists in California um, for a reason. It was the policies we established that created the conditions for the kind of risk-taking and investments that Elon Musk and his board have made. And we've now exported that technology around the rest of the globe. 56 headquartered manufacturing companies in the ZEV space. One of our biggest exports just in that space. We're the first jurisdiction in America to require all purchases of new vehicles to be alternative fuel vehicles by 2035. We saw then other states follow that lead at the pace that's required of this moment. And that pace setting is to me where the real opportunity lies. And I'll tell you, you listened to the president yesterday and our climate assessment came out, there was not a lot of good news in there. I mean, everybody needs to wake up. This, this climate crisis is a fossil fuel crisis, period, full stop. It's the burning of carbons, and we have got to get off our addiction. And California is in the how business, and we want to prove that we can do that and significantly grow our economy, and we want to dominate. We want to dominate in this next great global industry. Talk to me a little bit more about then your vision coupling environmentally sound policies and economic growth because, you know, to play devil advocate here, as some people would, they could say, well, that's a challenge. It's a challenge to grow the economy in this way, taking into consideration all of these factors with regards to sustainability. You've just said it's not. You're saying it's an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Talk to me more about that thinking and how you achieve it. The challenge is the status quo. It's bankrupting us. I said we're burning up, heating up, and choking up. People are having a hard time getting property insurance. That's impacting new home construction. The cost of living is going through the roof. Taxpayers are getting fleeced every single year. I mean, how many billion-dollar catastrophes can the taxpayers continue to absorb and subsidize? The cost of inaction is the insanity of the status quo. I'm for the fresh air of progress versus the stale air of normalcy. I mean, this is the greatest economic opportunity that's ever been presented. So we have to disabuse ourselves of this mindset, this lazy mindset that somehow this impacts economic growth. Let me just give you a proof point. In 2021, we had 7.8% GDP growth in the state of California. We're the fifth largest economy in the world, on our way to be the fourth largest economy in the world soon. If you're from Germany, we're right behind you. We're coming. Uh, we just took out the UK. Thank you, Brexit. Um, and, and, and my point no is saying that, that was a shot. That was a shot. That wasn't fact. Um, but the point is, the point is, 
you, you, you see, I mean, if your world, your entire world is just GDP, then consider California in the last decade. Consider California before the pandemic, five years before the pandemic, California outgrew all Western democracies. In fact, globally, there was only one economy, and that was China that outperformed the state of California in the five years prior to the pandemic, as we were accelerating these environmental policies. And I want to underscore that, as we were accelerating this transition. So I just, I call BS on this whole idea, which by the way, is an idea that's brought, bought and paid for by the arbiters of the status quo that are buying off politicians like me left and right, where we all run out with our stale talking points. California is about innovation, it's about change, it's about entrepreneurialism, it's about pushing out the boundaries of discovery and new thinking. And I want to invite the world to this state, and again, it goes back to the state of mind that I had in the reflection of your question. And in fact, being no matter what happens, I want you to all please understand this. No matter what happens in Washington, D.C., we are a stable partner when it comes to investment in this space. The Trump administration, and let me call balls and strikes, the Trump administration tried to vandalize our leadership. We were involved in over 100 lawsuits with the Trump administration, and we beat him back in every one of those cases. We will continue to maintain our leadership no matter what happens, and that, I hope, invites investment and invites the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that defines the best of our state. Governor, talking about that entrepreneurial spirit, you've spoken about the need for fast pace acceleration for leading the way. I want to ask you, how do you make sure that no one gets left behind in that as well? Because we were speaking to our guests, Ambassador Cousin, uh, who was saying, we have a dwindling number of black farmers in this country. We have 35 million people right here in America who are food insecure. When we look at California and we think of Silicon Valley, innovation. And then we look at the Central Valley, for example, and we think about the agriculture there and the challenges that are also faced there because of climate change. Right. How do you make sure that no one gets left behind? Well, that's the economy you've created. It was a left behind economy. That's why I want to disrupt the status quo and advance a construct of not just growth, but inclusion. And we build that in. The answer is very specific. and It's not even complicated. You write it into the rules and regulation. We have the first fully functioning cap and trade program in the United States of America. Interesting, a Republican governor signed that legislation. In the cap and trade legislation, we require the cap and trade revenue to go back into communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the change. Uh, I'll give you another example, a very specific example. We have, and my staff hates when I refer to it as the Saudi Arabia of lithium. But down near the Salton Sea, in the southern part of California, uh, we have enough lithium reserves uh, to basically provide for a third of all the lithium in the world. We just established a new rulemaking. 100% of all the fee and tax revenue that's generated from the extraction of lithium has to go back to this community that has been disproportionately left behind and impacted mm -hmm. by our fossil fuel economy. So you write the rules and regulations. Again, we overcomplicate this. It's pretty straightforward. And we address the mistakes of the past because we know the fossil fuel industry has socialized those costs and burdens on the rest of us. The healthcare impacts in the Central Valley are disproportionately being felt in terms of bad air quality, asthma rates, lifespans. Uh, all of those things are factored in in the context of all of our rules and regulation and our workforce development strategies and our long-term sustainable mindset in terms of addressing, again, the inclusion part of that growth uh, equation.
I mean, as you sketched out at the beginning of our conversation, you have been on the front lines of this in California, whether that is uh, water scarcity, whether that is wildfires that you have been yeah. battling now for years, um, increasing in ferocity as well. How has that inspired your vision when it comes to sustainable leadership and taking that from it sometimes from a local level yeah. and then bringing that onto, uh, you know, a global stage as well here at APEC? It's, it's, it's rather extraordinary. I was in Beijing recently, and they had a similar experience. Record-breaking drought and then record-breaking rain, back-to-back. Hmm. -back. That's exactly what happened to us this year. In December, in January, in February, March, these pineapple expresses, these atmospheric rivers, these rivers in the sky, massive flooding. After three years of some of the worst drought we've ever had in our history, this whipsaw. But what you just laid out, is more impactful. It's people, it's lifestyles, it's traditions that are being destroyed and wiped out in real time. Grizzly Flats, California, almost wiped off the map because of wildfires. Paradise, California, 85 people lost their lives. First time I met Donald Trump was on a flight to Paradise, California, uh, where he saw firsthand the ravages of Mother Nature. Of course, he doesn't believe in climate change. But he, again, had to have believed his own eyes. Uh, he said it was a forest management issue. A little simple uh, in terms of his mindset. He also said we should rake our forests, and that would solve it. And I mean actually in real life said rake them with rakes. Just rake it. 100 million acres. I don't know about your raking policy in your respective countries. Um, but that was a serious, serious proposal from the President of the United States former president. Uh, he lost the election, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, look, when you, when you go to Greenville, California, it's gold rush town like Grizzly Flats and Paradise that's literally wrapped off a map, um, it's pretty sobering. And the folks up there, that's Trump country as well. A lot of conservative folks up there. And it goes back to my fundamental point. Uh, there's no Republican thermometer in American politics or a democratic thermometer. It's just real life. And in California, what's happened, and I think you're seeing this growing consciousness around the world, this is no longer ideological. It's not even through the prism of politics. It's through the prism of people loving their families, loving their communities, and are just desperate to address the ravages of what we have created in this man-made climate disaster. And the fact is, we have the tools. And I just, if, you know, if there's nothing else I want to leave with you, when I say we're in the how business, we're through this now, we're in this process we call it the great implementation. We've moved away from ambition. I don't know what else we can do. I guess we could pull some of our ambition closer. But at the end of the day, I'm done signing any commitments to 20 this, 20 that. It's like, we've got to go. We've got to invest. We've got to make things happen. And I think people are now seeing that they're part of that future and they see a brighter and better future. And that's why I'm very enlivened and optimistic. Did you take that message to China, for example? You were recently there. Tell us about those conversations. Well, look, there is no, you're never going to solve for the planetary realities of climate change unless California, or rather the United States, in partnership with California and China, work together. Um, you know, just, just think about the United States and China alone, over 40% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, just the two countries. And so it's all about partnership. I, I said it when we met with President Xi, it's, it's, it's not a closed fist, it's an open hand. 
and it's sharing best practices. It's partnership. It's scaling technologies. It's sharing technologies. I, I, I left uh, with you know, the climate envoys. You saw with the climate envoy Kerry and minister was down there at Sunnylands, and we had an opportunity to showcase some of the work we're doing out here, some of the modern work. But, but we've been trading best practices for decades between our respective countries, and, and the planet is a beneficiary. Our economies are beneficiaries. So more of that, and that's why I'm here at APEC. More of that. Again, open hand, not a closed fist. Divorce is not an option. We have to live together and advance together across our differences. We'll manage our strategic competition. But at the end of the day, we all share the same short moment in life. And the climate is the ultimate equalizer. And to me, it's so foundational in terms of finding, of, of connecting our fate and future in a way that should invite us all to the same table. And, and so I, I was really proud of that trip. Uh, I, I was really, I'm really proud to see our two presidents meeting as we speak, They're trying to turn the page, turn down the volume a little bit. And I just think it's a very healthy thing. So you went there with a message of an open hand from California. Yes. How was that received? What kind of partnership well, do you depend, think? You know, it, through the silly season of politics, for the folks that, you know, on that other side of the political aisle, that's, that's one thing. The folks that are actually thinking uh, through stuff and I think received very well. It was certainly, I, I don't know, I, I can't talk about how it was received in China. Uh, but, um, you know, look, it was received well in my home. I got four young kids. I got a seven-year-old boy, Dutch. And uh, you know what? I think he'll, you know what? I think he'll be proud of his dad 20, 30 years from now. Said, you know what? You know, I, when I was his age, I was jumping under the damn desk at school because we're having some nuclear war with Russia. I don't want him to grow up like that. I mean, literally, I lived through that anxiety in the late 70s and 80s. We all did. We don't need that. There's too much anxiety, too much stress in this world. I mean it. And so I'm not interested in the situational politics. And, um, you know, that's why I was out there with, the, with President Xi yesterday, welcoming to California, welcoming back to the United States. We need more of that. And again, that's why I'm proud to see President Biden down there and their teams working together. I'm looking forward to the readout today, and I have all the confidence it will be very positive and constructive. And so, again, uh, uh, our lives are too short. And, uh, and uh, I really mean this. We, the, the, the issue of climate presents itself as an opportunity uh, of, for the commonwealth. Uh, and it creates an opportunity for us to build trust in relationships, because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Governor Newsom, thank you so much for thank being you guys. with Thanks us. For thank you. Me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.